We accept whiteness as normal and acceptable, but it never has been and never will be. We cannot create an anti-racist whiteness because to be white is to be racist. Those are the words of my guest, Daniel Blight. Have I said your name correctly? Perfectly. So, bro, <laughs> me reading it as a black man, I'm thinking to myself, okay, ooh, that's a bit touchy. Not because maybe so much of the content, which I guess we could have a discussion around the content, but I can just imagine what the response of white people to that would be. So the question is, why did you write that? And why do you do what you do? Which seems a consistent theme in as well, the book which you've um, published, uh, Image of Whiteness. And I'm thank you for sending it to me, by the way. That's fine. (laughs) I guess the reason why white people might not enjoy that statement or be able to, let's say, open it up in their own minds is because of a lack of willingness to be vulnerable to new ideas and also a sense in which there's a massive ignorance among white people about the history of racial whiteness or what it is to be racially white. My basic position with respect to the line to be white is to be racist comes from the idea that if you kind of trace a history of the invention of racial whiteness back to, say, the 17th century and uh, New World colonialism, it's hard to not see it as fundamentally a violent, murdering, land-grabbing, aggressive force. So I'm trying to be kind of realistic and real about what racial whiteness is and get people, white people especially, to think critically about it as it exists kind of within themselves. Okay, so I can totally understand. I mean, as you quite rightly said, and I believe it's W.E. Du Bois who points out the creation of race, you know, and, and, so, and you know, with the kind of late 18th century, we see the creation of race and we see the kind of birth of scientific racism. Mm-hmm. So, we, I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, understand, and I have always, I do say, the categorization of people into races based on skin color is racist in and of itself. Uh-huh. So I totally get that. But then some, someone will come back and retort with, but okay, those white people then who created it was racist. Now it's just an identity. Identity that is, that you know, as you have black people, you have white people, you have people who are Chinese, you have people, to, whoever, whatever it may be. What's wrong with people identifying that identity today? Right. Well, I guess, again, it's that thing of, if you still identify with racial whiteness, if you think it's a problem, you have to trace its negative aspects into the present day. And my position on this, and lots of people will deny it, lots of people indeed do in the media, is that systemic racism is still with us in a huge way. It's found, you know, smart ways to hide and to kind of reduce its so-called important amongst sort of liberal conversation. But it's still there in a fundamental way. Um, I'm thinking here of like Joe Fegan, the American sociologist's work in collaboration with another sociologist called Kimberly Ducey, where they kind of outline the idea of three oppressive systems that exist today, one being systemic sexism, another being systemic classism, and then systemic racism. So I think if you trace the kind of history of racial whiteness in in a pot or in a nutshell from the 17th century up to the present day, it's, it still very much exists. So to kind of align yourself with it seems to be counterintuitive or oxymoronic if you understand the fact of it being a form of violence, effectively. I, told, I understand, again, I want to kind of push back and maybe explore that further uh-huh. on the thing of historically, yes, people can, I mean, I'm not somebody who I, I consider myself quote unquote pro-black, people can take it 
can understand what they mean from that as they wish. But people would say, historically, yes, for the last 400 years, undoubtedly white people on the face of the earth has shown they can be extremely violent. And they have been extremely violent, yeah? But in kind of move the conversation forward into uh, into modern day, and again, we have, you know, we've moved from what we say illiberal racism to more liberal racism, where it's more an institution, it's more systemic and systematic, and, and you know, that which permeate our institutions, understood. But as an identity marker, are you trying, are you, can white people then not be racist then? Is that, is that, are you saying the white, because I mean, another part in your book, you say to be white is to be intrinsically racist. Well, I'm basically sure that can't be. There's a paradox at play. Like if you Mm -hmm. accept that you're racially white, as I do, for example, I can't in good sense simultaneously except that I'm not a racist because I am socialized to be racially white, which to me equals Mm -hmm. racist. I can't, in my study of the history of racial whiteness, I can't save it in any way. I can't kind of find a way to recover it as an identity. I'm open to that idea, but I'm very dubious about the fact that it could be, you know, resuscitated, if you like. It's basically a form of, you know, social death from its very existence to the present day as as far as I'm understanding it. Super, super interesting. So my question is, as a white person, how did you get to this position? Right. That's a great question. Uh, Mostly through the work of an amazing American philosopher named George Yancey. I came across about three and a half years ago, a book of his kind of collection of essays, philosophical essays on whiteness is the subtitle. The the book's called Look White, which is a kind of riff on that famous W.B. Du Bois line, the, what I took from it is that there are deep questions to be posed about the nature of racial whiteness and whether it is anything that we can save. And George Yancey, a conference I organized in 2017, posed the question, what if to be white is to be racist in a fundamental sense? So in in terms of a kind of philosophical project, I owe an, an immense amount to that particular philosopher. Now, there are obviously a number of other scholars that pick up on this, these ideas, a number of Americans, some British too. In the States, you've got kind of critical education scholars such as Zeus Leonardo, another philosopher, Barbara Applebaum, who write about these kind of social relations of, you know, whether it's possible to be both simultaneously good and white, for example. So, yeah, I'm kind of through scholarship, I guess, I've come across these ideas. So that's super interesting. So you're going the full mile then, because I would say we have to challenge the notion of white supremacy, for example, and white privilege, whereas you would say you have to challenge the, the notion of oh, whiteness. seems to be cutting itself. out a bit. So yeah, I mean, I definitely would agree with you in that, yes, we challenge the white supremacy, of course, and white privilege, but you're going the full mile, as it were, and say we have to challenge whiteness in and of itself. And if, if you're challenging whiteness, what will replace it? What, what replaces whiteness then as an identity for people? Well, I guess going back historically again, it's about kind of reversing that false connection between the invention of racial whiteness and white skin, which is really a signifier, right, of racial whiteness. So the first thing, and I sort of say this in my book, is that, you know, my whiteness has very little to do with my white skin and much, much more to do with the way that I involuntarily subscribed to a particular kind of social system or social organization in the sense that we live in a fundamentally white supremacist world yes 
what has been what has been the reaction to you by the way i'm just curious to know <laughs> very mixed okay so yeah lots of disgruntled white trolls okay you know like social media but i don't take any of that stuff seriously because they don't sort of step up and meaningfully engage with the ideas right it's just sort of, of trolling course. you know and then it ranges from like death threats all the way through to like oh wow open-minded white folks being willing to have critical conversations that's okay i can imagine people being disgruntled but do you still feel like the way you do things is like the best course of action do you feel like it might just get people's backs up when and people just not being open-minded willing enough to engage I think so. In, in a sense, yeah, I've thought about this a lot, right? Because most of what I do is yeah. in the classroom, and obviously I'm not as polemical in a sort of teacherly context. Yes. Much more about presenting evidence and persuasion and sort of two sides of, of an argument. But in of terms course, of yeah. like uh, the book and some of my critical writing, it's a lot more polemical. I mean, what I'm getting from black and brown scholars and scholars of colour that have been working on these yes. far longer than me is that like white people have had quite enough time to figure this shit out. And, uh, yeah. you know, there needs to be more people willing to sort of step up and be openly critical about this stuff. But at the same time, you know, it's about education and about about learning. So I hope I kind of get that mix right, you know? Yeah, trying to get the balance between educating people. I mean, the thing is, but do you not feel like with what we see rising Trumpism, rising populism and far right movements, that that job has become all the more, much more difficult? Because, you know, there is like a pushback right now on what it means to be right and asserting whiteness as a form of dominance. Yeah, definitely. Especially with regards to it's called quote unquote white ethnicity. So there's, there, you know, yeah. there are even kind of like senior academics uh, in political science that are trying to reclaim the kind of notion of white ethnicities as something that obviously plural, but also can be positive, like, you know, the idea being that it's okay to be white and that people shouldn't feel embarrassed about that. And I think that their their intentions are good, but they fundamentally misunderstand what's at stake. And I, my kind of retort to that is it's absolutely fine to have white skin. There's very little you can do about yes. that. But if you dig into the history of racial whiteness, you know, there's very, very little positive aspects to be found or recovered. So I, I don't think whiteness is something that people need, you know? that white-skinned people need. They don't need to cling to it. But it's obviously tied in and bound to, you know, capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, classism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's unpicking that as a sort of project, I guess. Pushing back again, the person who says that, but, you know, okay, I'm white. So are you saying that it's the issue is identifying with white obviously you said you can't you can't choose to change the color of your skin i mean people can tan and people can bleach their skins it works both sides yeah. but so people can't obviously people can't change their skin but it's the identification with whiteness which is a problem and and that cannot be separated from being a racist pretty much because you can't i mean like if you think about all the typical things that white people like to say yeah. they did well right so one of the kind of yeah. aspects you see... In the- I was, I was going to ask you, you, you read my mind. I was about to go on like, okay, someone would say, you know, we had an empire and, you know, all these things. Yeah. This is our history. And then you, and you see how people get upset with the removal of statues, for example. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. you get, here, here's a great example. The scholar Kahinda Andrews, professor yes. of black studies at um, Birmingham yes, University. Yeah. He was good morning, Great Britain last year. Are you making his, his uh, you're making a statement of white, white, whiteness and psychosis? Exactly. Got in trouble for that recently. And there was another thing he said, I think it was in the same interview, which was that you can't compare, say, the British 
empire to Nazi Germany because what the British Empire did was far worse and over a much longer period of time. And you can't, yeah. you can only imagine very, very, very few white people these days saying like publicly that they're, a Nazi, they're Nazis. But you can yeah. imagine a lot of people saying that they're proud of the British Empire. So, and that's just the question of ignorance, really. It's just kind of yeah. like the, yeah. the way that people like me are taught in the UK is that we, be it consciously or unconsciously, must maintain a kind of white privilege and excitement and not see clearly the state of the history of Britain. You know, I, I wasn't taught any of that stuff in school, you know? Yes. So it's kind of a so, so you, of education yeah. going back to that idea, I suppose. Of course. I mean, I think, I think this is what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And obviously, I think the work you're doing is, is a form of education. The only way we're going to have any kind of change is through education. So the question is, you, you accept then there's something called white privilege. I, I mean, it's not a far stretch for me to say that, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> At which point then did you realize there was something called white privilege? Because it's very interesting. I try to, I think it's very important. It's so easy to become, you know, black and white, <laughs> pun intended, in these in these kind of uh, dialogues with on race. You can be very, oh, okay, one way, this is only one way to see things. And I feel like sometimes it could be to the detriment of the argument. So I try to have a discussion. I think that, you know what, when I speak to a lot of white people and they don't get where I'm coming from or they can't understand where I'm coming from, I understand in many ways that they are coming from a position where they've never had to question their positionality in this world. Uh They've never had to think to themselves, am I getting this treatment because I'm white? Exactly. It's not even, you know, it's not, it's not even coming in there. uh, It's not even within their kind of remit of, of how they view the, of lens of um, how they view the world in any way. Whereas for me as a black man, obviously if I'm getting, if I'm getting followed in the shop, for example, or I've had, several racist incidents against me personally, some overt, covert, you know, naturally because of what blackness is tied to and what it's seen in society and portrayed, I immediately go to, is it because I'm getting this treatment because I'm black, for example? So, you know, is it just the fact that we have to get white people to critically engage in what it means to be white? Because again, if you've never questioned your positionality in the world, how can you arrive at that? How can you arrive at that position? Because I mean, as a famous quote, I mean, someone has been quoted a lot recently. If you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yeah, exactly. This is the pro- this is the issue with this kind of um, hyper white sensitivity, or however you want to phrase it, in which there's a kind of yeah. immediate defense mechanism, which is psychological. And you know, in a way, it's kind of human because it's about protecting yourself, and we all have those yeah. impulses, right? And it seems, yeah. if you listen to sociologists and psychologists, that we also have those. Um, impulses of protection in terms of our social groups Uh, yes but for me the question is like I stumbled across this idea of racial whiteness three and a half years ago hadn't heard a whisper about it before that you know it was like I'd been taught a bit about like the fluid social nature of gender and about colonialism at university but only very briefly and so yeah it opened up a lot of questions for me and it, the, the issue f- for me was like my own interests are at stake here, right? So there's a kind of, mm-hmm. there's two things happening, right? On the one hand, there's a kind of like a, a sense in which I hope I'm being open-minded and critically driven to understand myself, you know, vis-a-vis racial whiteness. But then there's also, yes. and I'm kind of much more wary about this side of my own psyche, a narcissistic yes. drive to understand what makes me white. And there is, there is somehow a kind of hope in me that I might recover it, even though I know fundamentally it's not 
not something to be saved, basically. So I'm in that sense, wow. I'm an abolitionist, right? Okay. Uh, which is to say that I don't think there's any use for racial whiteness. And the kind of quicker we get to a place where it, white people feel they don't need it. And of course, it's important, you know, as Kinder Andrews points out himself, to bring that guy up again, yeah. whiteness isn't just for white people, right? It's like, it's yeah. a social system that uh, irrespective of the color of your skin, you can take on and recapitulate and support. Yes. Uh, wow. Okay. Heavy. I mean, that's, that's super, super heavy. So yeah. At which point then did you realize, like, what, which point did you question your positionality and realize it was a privilege? Was it something like a specific catalyst? Was it an event? Was it a moment? Like, or if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. If you can I, think of one. I mean, going back to George Yancey, it was, it was literally just like reading the introduction to his book, Look a White, three and a half years ago. And yeah. it just basically blew my mind. And I was like, what, you know, what is this? Like, so it resonated with you then? Yeah, yeah. So it basically rocked my sense of self, to put it frankly. Okay. And that's been a sort okay. of continuation for the last like three and a half years. Okay, brilliant, man. Brilliant. This is going to probably be a very controversial episode. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of people have a lot of pushback against it. But I think this is, I think this is how we just, these have, I think it's very important we have these kind of dialogues, to be honest. I've not, I've, I'm someone who's involved in anti racist campaigning, um, trying to, and I kind of, assume the role of trying to be an educator and, and what you said in terms of in your book and your writing has been like the first time I've really heard it in this way and a part of me wants to be like okay yeah it makes a lot of sense and I think you do have strong arguments makes a lot of sense but the kind of pragmatic side of me is like but how feasible is this and how achievable is this going to be and, and I'm sure you have the same kind of questions to yourself so what do you yeah, think of it definitely what do you think of these things well it's weird isn't it because like recently we've heard this kind of academic idea of critical race theory being mentioned like by the yes. president of the United States of America, right? And in the House of Commons two, three weeks ago. And the Tory front bench. Exactly. <laughs> and that, that's, that's wild because like, I don't think any critical race theorist would have thought that they'd be getting, you know, their subject to mention in like the Houses of Parliament. Just, you know, yes. always been a sort of very niche research area. Yes. Um, but it, in various subtle ways, it's informed policy, especially with more left-wing politicians you know and but yeah. i think whether it's achievable is interesting because what we've seen with this like backlash against critical race theory of course lots of the yeah. people that mention critical race theory in these like don't have a foggiest idea exactly, what it's about they don't know what they're chatting about and that's pretty obvious by yeah. the way that they assign all all manner of things to that umbrella term when they don't really understand what it does specifically exactly so that's one question but it gives me sort of a weird sense of hope because it means there's a defensiveness on the right and in yeah. the kind of white denialist camp that means mm -hmm. they are provoked by these ideas and they yeah. potentially see them as a risk to the continuing dominance of you know neoliberal capitalism that's a very very good point i mean if you look at kemo badenoch who, who spoke about critical race theory in black history month exactly. i mean she says that you know this is a marxist and this and whatever and she said that, you know if you teach white privilege as an uncontested fact you could be you know face the law and all this crazy stuff which are quite quite almost neo-fascist in many ways but what stood out she said that critical race theory teaches white people that they are the oppressors and black people are victims right and i find that very i think i find that very strange i'm not sure critical race theory does that in that way but okay no, that's what she, that's what she <laughs> not, not in the way i use it and not in the way i've 
I've read any of the scholarship, you know? I think this is a yeah. myth that's like been built up by a kind of a combination of things. One is on the a kind of subtle critique of it amongst a number of uh, political scientists. I'm thinking about Eric Kaufman, yeah. for example, at Birkbeck, who write, wrote a book called um, White Shift, okay. where he's, you know, and it often takes the form of an, a general attack on postmodernism, which is like yes. his, he, he takes kind of umbrage with a particular kind of theorizing that emerged in the 20th century. And then that often yeah. gets lumped in with a kind of wider critique of CRT. But then on the other hand, there's okay. a kind of, much bigger volume, much louder volume of social media anti-CRT activity coming from people yeah. like James Lindsay in America, for example. Now, it's kind okay. of total assumption, but I, I'm thinking to myself, one of the reasons that a mention of CRT got made its way up to the president mm-hmm. was because of people like James Lindsay, who have on the one hand the okay. base of being scholars or academics. You know, he clings to his maths PhD like it's the only thing yes. he's ever done that was worthwhile. It's a kind of badge <laughs> of honor to drive through yeah. which are actually what are actually quite ignorant positions. And yeah, he yeah. co-wrote a book with Helen Pluckrose that is, for lack of a better phrase, clumsy as fuck with respect to these ideas. Now, yeah, to like Kemi Badnot, what's really interesting and and really problematic about her position is that yeah. in a matter of days, the government went from. And her speech, which is like, you know, CRT is bad, to put it simply, to the government quietly at two o'clock in the morning publishing a report. This was on the 11th of November. The report was called Black People, Racism and Human Rights. Yeah, yeah, I read it. Yeah, yeah. And, And, you know, you read the like second paragraph of the summary and it's just like... It basically just says systemic racism exists and this government refuses to do anything about it. And so it's kind of like, what, you know, what's going on? Are they just hoping that people don't see the report? Uh, it's a, there are huge contradictions at play. 100%, 100%. And I wanted to speak about the phenomena, if you don't mind engaging. Finally, the phenomenon when we see things like people like Candace Owens, for example. Right. The phenomenon when we see these, and in the UK we have our fair share as well. These kind of, and I've always said that, you know, if you want to make it in mainstream media, you can do, be one of two people, one of two archetypes, if it were, as it were. You can be the white man who's obtuse and you make it in mainstream media, media or you can be the black person who says things that white people wish they would want to say, basically. Right. Yeah. Okay. When you talk, when you see like Candace Owens stuff, what has, what has, if you're going to analyze that, has she just embraced whiteness? Is she just a grifter? What do you think? I think it's like. What's really interesting, right, is that lots of these people that I fundamentally disagree with aren't stupid. You know, I can't... Candice <laughs> Owens is an intelligent woman. Like, Toby Young is an intelligent guy. So is Eric Kaufman, who's a professor. So is James Lindsay, he has a PhD in maths. <laughs> right? Even if I think... Can, can, people... can, if you think okay, the rest of... The, uh, bar Candice Owens, I think I agree with you. I, th- I don't think Candice Owens is that intelligent, well, but okay. Not, like, <laughs> I'm trying to be sort of, you know, polite and give, give her some credit, right? She's well spoken with that, okay, and she can argue. Yeah. That's what you mean. <laughs> she can argue very. She can present a coherent, coherent argument. I give her that. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've I've only really, I mean, I've seen like news clips and stuff. I think the most sustained like amount of time I've spent watching her is when she did a thing with uh, Russell Brand on his on his vodcast. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I just the level of ignorance of history is so profound that it's so, it's so bad, isn't it? It's so bad. 
Yeah, and I think, uh, in a sense, it that sums up the problem right there, doesn't it? We're not taught about these things in any, unless you yeah. do like a kind of yeah humanities or culture studies course or a sociology course yeah. at like a left wing university. You just don't hear about this stuff and you don't read it. Exactly. And so it's, exactly. it's a massive issue of like lack of access to this, what is an incredibly important part of history. 100%, 100%. I mean, I know people can engage with you in your writing and engage with you in your, from your book and your Twitter, but if you're going to speak to the masses of white people right now, what would be a takeaway you'd like to say? To white people at large? Yes. Just, um, you know, read uh, The History of White People by Nell Painter which is a great book and will kind of open your eyes and your mind to, you know, what people with our skin color have been through socially. I don't mean that in the sense that we've had it tough. I mean that in the sense that we've had a kind of collective experience of being massively dominant for 400 years in an incredibly violent way. Like Mm -hmm. any individual who's violent collectively, we have to take responsibility for what we've done in the world we've literally made and continue to hang on to. There's one, one example, there's a number of other books that yeah. you mentioned, you know? And I think it's very interesting, actually. I feel like two things that kind of pop up to mind and they always stick into my head when I think of race dialogue um, and race relations. The first thing I believe is, you know, race worker Jane Elliott, I believe, when she goes, you know, her famous kind of room, to, room full of white people, stand up if you'll be comfortable with treating black people, if the society treated you as black people are treated and no one stood up. Right. And then it's equally when you see, you know, Amy Cooper famously said, I'm going to call a police and say, and say, there's a black man here. I, and I thought that's very scary because day to day, I'm sure Amy Cooper probably was a lovely person. I'm probably she had black colleagues. I'm sure she stood behind black people on the line. Like overtly, she wasn't racist, but she knew she could weaponize her whiteness and get someone potentially killed. Yeah. Absolutely. And I thought, I thought, and I thought that that's very, puts a lot of people on edge, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think it does. It's an interesting point because it's like, there's so much kind of unconsciously at stake, right? There is a kind of deviant yes. mode in which a, a white person consciously mobilizes or weaponizes their whiteness. Yeah. And that's like, you know, venomous. But there's also a sense in which yeah. like all white people mobilize their whiteness on a daily basis without knowing it. And, mm, you know, okay, how so? A question for psychology, isn't it? And and yeah. there's lots of interesting research done in that area too. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me, man. You can, where, where can we get your book first and foremost? You can get it through, it was co-published by Self Published Be Happy and Art on the Underground, which are an organisation funded by the Mayor of London. And you can get it okay. through the Self Published Be Happy website. Okay. Straight off their website. That's called The Image of Whiteness, isn't it? Yeah, The Image of Whiteness. The Image of Whiteness. I and mean, people can find you on social media. I'll post Daniel's socials in the comments. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for joining me. This is The Malcolm Effects. Please like, comment, and subscribe wherever you're listening from, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. Until next time, peace out.